This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. It's Thursday. It feels like it should be Friday, but it's still only Thursday. Christmases are coming, but it feels like it's a long, long grind to get there. But we are making progress. Uh, and actually, there's a fair amount of news that we need to work our way through today. Uh, the sad news, Alex, is that Scott Minard um, from Guggenheim has died. Uh, a, a good friend of Bloomberg TV, a good friend of Bloomberg Radio. Uh, he was a legend in the industry, and he passed, we understand, uh, as a result of a heart attack. So we're incredibly sad about that. Yes, that was a devastating news there. Um, he was such a force in the market as a person and in Guggenheim as well. Um, he was only 63 also. So in terms of where we are for the broader market, it is, as you were mentioning, a really tough day. Uh, S&P is off 2%, NASDAQ yep. off by about 3 um, There is a lot of news to work through. Some of it is going to be micro, as in with Micron and CarMax, and what we learn from them. And the other is really macro. I mean, in some ways, the data here, at least in the U.S., is holding up really well. And then the other part to me is, hey, guys, it's the, like two days before the holidays. Like, no one's here. No one's trading. How do you really trust any of these moves? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a a kind of big takeaway from from what we're seeing in the markets right now. But I do think that it is a continuation of a theme. Mm-hmm. Um, the economic data, as you say, out of the United States, solid. Actually, I think the GDP data pointed to an almost reacceleration within did, the, U- yeah. the U.S. economy. Um, and what that tells us is that the Fed is going to have to be maybe believed. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to believe the Fed when it says it's going to raise interest rates up to around uh, 5% or possibly beyond, because that is what the data are signaling at the moment. But as you say, I, so, so CarMax is, I, I think, an interesting story. Um, this is a this is a used car uh, resale. We, we've known that there is a there are kind of that there is a sort of waiting storm in the used car, used car market. Used car prices were very elevated for a long time, but now we're starting to see extra supply coming through, and as a result of which that market is bottoming out. The Micron story, I think, is harder to figure out, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Your data looks okay. Yeah, yours not so much. Ours not so much. And, and to be honest, the ONS data today was kind of the latest in a string of numbers that I don't think are particularly clever for the UK economy. So, so yesterday it was about government borrowing. Today it's about the the kind of the latest read on GDP, uh, which was revised lower. You've also got income data, which basically signals I think it's the fourth consecutive quarter of a squeeze on UK uh, incomes adjusted for inflation. None of this is particularly pretty, and just kind of reinforces the idea that that the UK economy feels like it's already in a recession and that is going to be a recession that is going to last for really quite some time. So I'm fairly gloomy. And to be honest, I think while people are spending into Christmas, I think January is going to be really tough. And I think January is going to be really quite miserable. And we'll talk about that in more detail in a moment as well. Philip Aldrich joining us now uh, from Bloomberg Economics to discuss the GDP data. Philip, just how tough a tape is it for the UK economy right now? Every piece of data that I see at the moment seems to be uniformly grim. Yeah, it, it isn't. It doesn't look good at, at the moment. As, as you mentioned, the public finances—we've had the uh, 
November, the, the highest amount of borrowing by the government for any November ever on record. So that, was, that didn't set things off very well yesterday. And then today we had a slight downgrade in the third quarter estimate, GDP growth estimate. Um, and, it had, and within that, there, was, there were these sort of negative aspects. So as you say, four consecutive quarters of uh, falling household disposable income, and also, worryingly, actually, business investment um, is, is just not showing any signs of revival at all. Um, and, and companies are, are, the owners said that companies are working through their, you know, their, um, their stockpiles of, of you know, stuff that they built up during, uh, sort of during um, supply chain problems. But if they're, not, if, they're not, if they're just working through inventory, they're not going to be, uh, they're not investing, they're not buying new mm-hmm. stuff. So it's not going to be generating any new business. So this doesn't look good for the next few months. No, it looks pretty terrible. Um, and then you also have people's incomes just constantly being eroded by inflation. The one silver lining, I don't know, savings rate is really high. Like, what, what's my takeaway from that? Yeah, they are. I mean, there was a, so obviously there's a big increase in the savings rate. If, if you if you disaggregate it into um, what's driving that, it's basically higher interest rates. Um, and so if you if you remove this, they kind of there's an adjusted version in there which shows that the increase in savings has been slightly smaller. But so that that does suggest that people are worrying about what's coming down the line, and they're, and so they're, they're tucking money away, you know, ahead of. Larger costs from April, the energy price cap goes up by five hundred pounds um, uh, for the typical annual bill. Um, so they, they need they're going to need a little bit of extra cash, and people are preparing preparing for that. The, 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 there is a lot of savings out there. People do have this this all of this sort of um, enforced excess savings that was two hundred billion pounds worth of it, which was um, set aside during the pandemic. There, there is a buffer there, and people still have a lot of equity in their houses. So we can withstand some house price falls because we had a big 20% increase over, over the pandemic. But there are reasons to think that you know we just there's going to be some hard yards, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be absolutely dismal by the end of next year. What does it mean for the Bank of England? Well, it, it's, uh, it's clear that they they need to just continue raising rates relatively uh, aggressively. They've, they've scaled it back from three quarters to half a point. Um, in the most recent meeting, and but it does mean that they're going to have to. Well, inflation is still uh, still ten over ten percent, and the um, uh, projection is. It's, I mean, by the end of next year, it's still going to be something like three times the target two percent rate. So there's no prospect of them being able to sort of unwind any of the uh, any of the um, increases rate, rate hikes that they've done. Um, rate hike, r- rates are at three and a half percent at the moment. They're probably going to get to something like four and a half percent before they sit still but it's the level that matters not mm-hmm. whether rates are rising and and the level will be you know punishing for some for some households so uh, but you know the, the, this is kind of the inevitable trajectory that all uh, countries that are facing inflation are are on isn't sure, it sure but guys let's be honest you guys are in a much worse shape <laughs> for different reasons than than other countries and i have to wonder you know when they get to four percent and stay there like where does the economy go then? And they stay there for a long time. How bad can it really get? Well, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not actually signed up to the complete doom and gloom uh, you know, theory. The, I mean, if, if rates get to four percent, there, there will be certain households that are going to be affected. 
and uh, and it's going to be it's going to be really hard, and uh, we can't escape that. There's something like four million households that are going to be uh, remortgaging next year, uh, so they're going to face these higher costs. Uh, and there's another five million households out of total of 28 million, which are private renters. So so the landlords may pass on. Uh, their mortgage costs through higher rents. So that's nine million. That's a third of the house, households which will, which potentially are facing some difficulty if they haven't got a pocket in you know, a stack a stash of cash. Um, but uh, but there, there is resilience in the other two thirds of of um, of the market. And and you can't really see any specific areas where there has been a over over investment where there's been some kind of pre pre-recession boom. We haven't had a massive spurge in business, but we haven't had a massive spurge in commercial uh, borrowing for, you know, commercial property or, you know, household um, debt to um, income ratios are better than they have been for a while. Debt servicing ratios are going up, but even when they go, even with rates at four and a half percent, they're not going to be as bad as they were at the peak of the crisis before the, before the financial crisis um, in 2007. So, you know, there, there are sort of, Areas where you can feel that there is a little bit of resilience out there. Unemployment is three point seven percent. If it, yep. you know, if it goes up to, by five hundred thousand people, that's that's horrible. But it's nothing compared with the eight point five percent that we got to in two thousand and ten. So there is some some hope that it's not going to be as as disastrous. Yeah, uh, the, the the ghost of Christmas future is certainly warming up, but he's not completely ready to uh, to take us on just yet. Um, thank you very much indeed, Philip. Always a pleasure. Have a great Christmas. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. It's a tough trading environment, you know, with the war in Ukraine, inflation running at more than 10%, the backdrop of strikes, as you've mentioned. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a tough environment. Businesses and consumers don't like uncertainty, particularly at this time of year. Tom Atheron, the CEO of Fortnum & Mason, talking to Bloomberg a little bit earlier on. Alex, Fortnum's is at the upper end of the uh, the income story, I suspect, when it comes to spending. If Fortnum's is seeing a, a tough tape right now, doesn't bode particularly well for the bottom end of the market. But apparently, pickled Brussels sprouts was sold out. Like, that was a huge thing. And I say that partly in jest because I've never had a pickled Brussels sprout, but also... Imagine it's a bit like sauerkraut, but I, but I don't uh... know. I do like my sauerkraut. Um, but but my point also is that maybe certain areas that you really want to buy, you still buy it. So, yeah, okay, everything hurts, but you're still buying things, just you're being really selective. So there are going to be certain pockets that are continued to do really well, which is, in essence, what we're seeing with certain luxury names, for example. But yeah. um, I wonder if that's like what we're learning a little bit more. And then how do you then trade those patterns going forward? Yeah, I think that the the real fear now is that January is going to be very tough. So people, as you say, will have spent yes. into Christmas buying their pickle Brussels sprouts. But yes. then come January, uh, you pull the plug on everything. We caught up as well with Helen Dickinson. She's the CEO of the British Retail Consortium. Well, what we've seen throughout the certainly the latter part of this year is that while retail sales have been rising in pound terms, they've been falling in volume terms. So many... Um, consumers have been being very discerning about what they're buying. Lots of them are trading um, across different categories, looking at um, different and cheaper ranges in order to try and sort of mitigate some of the effects of inflation out of their out of their shopping basket. So that backdrop that uh, Tom Athron from Fortnum's was describing in your piece is really 
the one that every business is facing. So multiple headwind, headwinds on mm-hmm. on multiple fronts and the strikes just, just make that worse at, a, at the most critical time of year. Helen, is there going to be enough discounting that can happen on the retail front to entice consumers to part with their cash? Or is this going to be something like a real downturn here? Um, I think certainly what we've seen here in the UK is that uh, the level of discounting has um, been reasonably high across some categories because what a lot of businesses did was increase their stock levels over the summer because of the challenges that were across the global market with supply chains in getting goods around the world, problems with, with freight and shipping. Much of those supply chain issues have now alleviated and uh, those um, channels are moving much more quickly. Freight is moving more normally around the world, but many businesses did build up some stock during that period. And that combined with a, uh, a, a challenging consumer demand backdrop has meant that many have needed to, to discount in order to, uh, yeah. to, to build sales in the lead up to Christmas. Helen, January is normally where the real pain becomes obvious. What do you think January is going to look like? Do you think we're going to continue to see failures? Um, I hope we won't see too many failures, but I am concerned, and certainly most of the people in the industry that I'm talking to here in the UK are are much more worried about what happens in the first half of next year um, and see the second half as being a little bit more optimistic so, so the real challenge will be as we come out of Christmas um, into 2023 mm-hmm. with that squeeze on both demand and cost pressures coming into businesses continuing into the new year. That was Helen Dickinson, uh, CEO of British Retail Consortium. And, and that just also goes to the point of the discounting. Um, to clear the inventory and kind of get things out the door, how much are you going to have to discount? to get people to actually buy it in this environment. I'm, I literally see sales for 50% and I'm like, nah, that's not good enough. Like, I'm not kidding. Are we looking at 80% off? Like, is this what we're, and what does that do then to the margins of these guys? Yeah, it depends on, I think, what you're what you're selling. Um, well, sure. I, some of this inventory can sit for longer and I think it, it's Skincare, really- for example. I'm talking about, I guess, more fashion. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's kind of, I think you need to, it's going to be quite nuanced in mm-hmm. terms of the sectors that, that really get hit and hit hard. And I think that's going to be the really interesting story for January. It's not Christmas in the run up to Christmas, it's January where the pain is mm-hmm. going to be felt. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. I listen to The Cable. I am Alex Steele in New York and Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's stay with the retail theme, but really focus in on China and luxury and maybe a little luxury here in the U.S. and the U.K. So the news overnight is that China is planning to cut their quarantine requirements for overseas travelers in January. So that means that people can leave China, go somewhere else and then come back. Um, They're considering a policy where you can just isolate for about three days of monitoring rather than go into a facility or a quarantine hotel, and that will really help the reopening process. Whether or not we want that's a different story. We'll get to that in just a moment. So does this wind up leading to a huge boom in luxury spending? Do we see the kind of revenge spending that we saw in the West after reopening happened? So let's get a deeper look here with Olivia Rockman. Uh, she joins us now. Um, Olivia, what what do we think? What, what what kind of revenge spending do you think we're going to see in China as compared to, say, the U.S.? We know that the reopening in China has been pretty choppy. There, you know, they had an initial reopening in 2020 that then 
didn't last very long. And so it does seem like Chinese shoppers will be a little bit more cautious in terms of whether this is, you know, the real end of, of the closures. And so in the U.S., you know, the reopening was a lot more obvious and the revenge spending happened, you know, pretty immediately. And the expectation for that in China is a little bit more tepid. It, you know, investors aren't as uh, optimistic about it there. In terms of the savings, do, do we know the U.S., one of the big stories in the U.S. economy, and we're still feeling it, Olivia, is the effect of huge amounts of savings that were built up and people have still been spending that savings. Does the same story go for China as well? China has a, a lot of wealth. Uh, people, because they've been locked down, have more pent up savings than what we're seeing in the U.S., where the savings rate has declined pretty markedly over the last six months. And so we know that Chinese shoppers have money to spend. It's just a matter of whether they'll decide to spend it on things like luxury, whether mm-hmm. they're going to invest in real estate, like kind of where they see those investments being worthwhile. Yeah. And sort of how long it takes for it to, to trickle out. Olivia, um, what is the state of luxury at this moment? Like, where are the pockets of strength that seem immune to any kind of downturn? Where are the vulnerable points? What really drove luxury in a new way during the pandemic was this idea of the aspirational consumer. So people that had saved a lot of money during the pandemic, maybe they weren't typically luxury spenders, but they went that way because of the extra cash that they had. A lot of these brands are going to lose those shoppers as the economy sort of gets more volatile and and some people lose their jobs. And so China opening is actually a really good sign because many of these luxury brands have a lot of exposure to China. And so maybe some spending there will offset the loss of those aspirational consumers. In terms of which brands are, are going to be successful here, is it? it's really interesting that Bernard Arnault is now the richest man on earth. And I'm just kind of wondering mm. what that tells us about kind of how much further these brands can go. He, he has built an empire at LVMH. Um, but, but I'm kind of I'm thinking, is this the high point? The fact that Arnaud is now the richest man on earth, does that does that tell us we've gone about as far as we can go? Assuming that the economy does take a slight turn in 2023 in terms of higher unemployment and more hurt in the in the Europe area and the US, it may be the peak for these luxury brands because we know that you know, shopping in general, whether it's at a high street store or luxury, is kind of the first thing to go. You don't need that purse, mm-hmm. you don't need those shoes. And so yeah, I'm told the, Alex if the this, economy yeah. does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't right. understand what you're saying. Um, <laughs> so, Guy's resolution to me for next year was to not buy any shoes, and my answer to that was to go out and buy three new pair of shoes. Just I see. Are you okay? This I'm is so ahead you of it. you are continuing to spend. You told but, me the other day that you'd stopped. Well, okay. This is more of a plantar fasciitis situation. So, buying the ugly shoes that make my feet feel good. So, kind of not really discretionary shopping. So, I feel like it doesn't count. Are you planning to buy more shoes in January? I mean, what kind of sales are we talking about? I'm just saying, is it, is it your plan? You okay? Fine. If the sales yeah. are good enough for the things that are on my wish list from Ukes, I will buy it. They very well may be, Alex. Yeah, well, I know. That's the I point. So, me. so, I'm so, this is that. the point. This is where I'm going with this. Uh, <laughs> what, what does next year look like in terms of the ability to buy some of this stuff at a significant discount? There are a lot of questions about the last week of spending in the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe, right? So, we're we're coming up on Christmas. Retailers are really hoping that customers come in and buy now. If that doesn't go well, and if the inventory from these brands is still really high come, you know, December 26th, 
January is going to be a time where they're continuing to discount to get rid of the seasonal merchandise that, that pack and hold won't really serve them to keep. I'm totally ready for that. Um, so staying on the consumer for a moment, not anecdotally, but what did you make of the consumer data that we got out of the U.S. yesterday with the confidence number and then today with the revision to GDP? Like, what, what did you make of that? I think that we continue to have a very mixed picture of the U.S. consumer. We had, you know, Black Friday, we had the numbers holding up pretty well. The growth wasn't massive, but we did see people shopping We've had consumer confidence sort of fluctuating throughout the year. There's been positive prints. There's been negative prints. I think the big question for the consumer is the labor market in all in all countries. And in the U.S., we still see pretty low unemployment. And the question is whether what we've seen in tech starts to bleed out into other industries and then starts to affect spending more markedly. Olivia, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Olivia Rogman joining us to discuss the retail and luxury story, China reopening. Maybe that helps out some of these big names. Um, so, Alex, just I just want to come back a little bit to, to the, the spending habits of January. Yeah, let's do it. Are, are you genuinely – Is there, do you go into this with a game plan? Is there a kind of, I'll buy that for X, or is it – I'm wondering how people pitch to you. Okay, so maybe <clears throat> 50 seconds. So I have all the websites that I like to go on and I like the designers that I like. I have all the things that I want to buy that are hearted, starred in my favorite category. And then when I see sales uh, or they send me you know, an email being like 20% off, this percent off, extra 20% off, I'll go into the, the favorites and I'll look at how much it costs. And then if, if I feel like it's reduced enough, and I, I mean, I'm talking like, 80% off. Like, I'm, I'm looking for some serious deals. Then I will purchase. Are you buying based on discount or are you buying on your, this is something I want? They are not necessarily mutually exclusive. But they might be. I, uh, is no, a big enough discount? If the, is a big the, enough discount enough to attract you to something that you didn't necessarily consider buying before? 100,000%. Yes. It's amazing. It is. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, it's just past 5.30 over in London. Here in New York, it's just past the half the trading day. And i got to say, it is a seriously ugly session that continues to evolve. The S&P uh, is off by 2.4%. On volume, that's not terrible. It's not great, but it's certainly not terrible. It's just 3% below the 10-day moving average. The Nasdaq is off by 3.2%. You ask why? I mean, David Tepper talked on CNBC about how bad things could possibly get. We had that warning from Micron. You had CarMax not being so great and all of that. Then you got better uh, data from the U.S. in terms of third quarter GDP being revised up. So maybe the Fed has to go harder. Sure, I can make excuses for all of that. This could also just be no one really wanting to take on a lot of risk as we're wrapping up the trading books into the end of the year. But nonetheless, guy, this is, is turning into a pretty ugly session. I have to want we're below thirty eight hundred. So you have to imagine that there's definitely some positions and some options that are being wiped out right now. Yeah, I don't want to uh, sort of big up our competition, but the Tepper interview was like he was like central banks are telling us that they're going to raise rates, and I believe them and. The ECB's Christine Lagarde is a grizzly bear, and I'm quite worried. So you I know, think that kind doesn't of doesn't feel good. Doesn't sort of set a particularly good tone. Um, I think the data was good enough today to freak the market out that the Fed's going to have to do more. Basically, sure. the, the, the kind of the, the link between those two is believe the Fed. Yes, the, the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England and now the BOJ are telling you they are going to do something. You should listen, and that's what the market hasn't done in the back half of this year. No. 
I mean, I'm still hearing, I think it's UBS, actually, that still sees a 3.25 term uh, rate, not terminal rate, but rate in the back half of next year from the Fed, because they're going to have to cut so aggressively because the economy is going to have to be so bad. So th- there is still that view out there. Um, I think another thing that sort of lingers in the background, Guy, is what's happening uh, with China and how it, it seems like COVID is getting really out of control. The official numbers are one thing, but the unofficial number, but but the unofficial, maybe even the actual numbers are something else and different modelings um, that we see. We actually spoke to Airfinity, um, head of vaccine epidemiology, Louise Blair, on this. And, and she has a new model. They're running the models about where, how much the cases are going to spread and how many deaths we're going to see. And it does not look pretty. Well, unfortunately, what we are seeing is um, our projections and forecasts play out. So uh, at the moment, we're forecasting um, approximately 1 to 1.5 million cases a day in China and about 5,000 deaths. So um, all the indicators that we're seeing in terms of anecdotal evidence and media reports are really backing up uh, those forecasts uh, rather than the official numbers, which you said um, are unlikely to be uh, the reality in China at the moment. Uh, Louise, um, when does it peak? What is your peak in the model that you have tell you? Well, we're forecasting um, the first peak to happen about mid-January. So because China is such a large country and we're expecting peaks to occur in different provinces at slightly different times, we're expecting the first peak around mid-January and then a second peak around March. So to put in context what we're seeing today, um, we're only seeing about 1 to 1.5 million cases. That could uh, reach up to 4 million at those peaks. What do you think reopening and restarting travel both internally and externally is going to have in terms of the impact that it's going to have on the data? Well, of course, increased mixing, as we have seen in many other countries throughout the world, uh, does lead to increased uh, number of cases. Now, we are anticipating uh, large events in China with the Lunar New Year coming up, and that's also going to impact the model. But in fact, what we're seeing at China at the moment is uh, restricted movement. Individuals are choosing to stay inside and, and, and decrease mobility. and at the moment, that's really uh, what we think could have an impact and slow that peak of that wave mm. uh, by decreasing mobility um, and using the more non-pharmaceutical interventions at this point in time. Uh, do we know what kind of variant um, China is dealing with right now and then subsequently how quickly it can spread? So what we're seeing worldwide is actually several Omicron subvariants circulating at the same time. So um, there's indications that uh, the variant BF7 is circulating in China, but we do think from the data um, that we're seeing elsewhere that there could be two to three Omicron sublineages circulating with similar transmissibility levels. So they're competing against each other, but because they're about the same transmissibility, they'll be circulating at the same time. Now, unfortunately, just as anywhere else, uh, with an increase in cases, especially at this uh, rapid speed, there is the risk of new variants emerging in China as well. Let's talk a little bit about how the healthcare system is holding up. When you extrapolate numbers from cases to mortality, how do you how do you work through what is happening in the healthcare sector and how much variance we're seeing in the healthcare sector and, and whether or not it can cope? Well, in terms of anecdotal evidence, I think we've all seen um, hospitals not being able to cope as well as crematoriums not being able to cope. And in our model itself, we um, anticipate the demand on ICU, um, so critical care beds in Beijing alone, uh, to be double what the capacity is uh, within that city. So, um, yeah, quite worrying figures coming out in terms of the ability of the healthcare system to be able to cope at the moment. 
Uh, Louise, talk me through uh, how you guys model vaccination rates and also the therapeutics. Obviously, having a pipeline to distribute those two things is one thing and take up is another. What are you noticing? Yeah, so in terms of uh, vaccinations, we are seeing uh, an increase but unfortunately, it's a little bit too little too late at the moment. The rate that we're anticipating cases to increase in China, um, vaccinations aren't going to uh, keep up. And of course, with vaccinations as well, there is a lag time where the body uh, responds to a vaccine and that immunity kick in. So in order to really protect the population, China will need to delay that increase, slow that uh, increase of cases, uh, as well as administering those vaccines. How long do you think it's going to take China to get through all of this? By this time next year, where do you think China's going to be? Well, we are anticipating those two peaks to occur between now and uh, early March. So they're two very large peaks. But just within that uh, time frame, we're only anticipating about 15 to 20 percent of the total population of China to be infected. Mm. Now, of course, if they remain with um, uh, tra- uh abandoning their zero COVID policy, not in implementing lockdowns. We can see, as we have done in other countries, uh, several peaks over the course of uh, next year with an uh, increasing number of uh, cases and deaths throughout. Louise Blair, Affinity's Head of Vaccines and Epidemiology, speaking to us a little bit earlier after they unveiled their latest model on what is happening with China uh, and its um, U-turn, massive U-turn uh, on COVID-0 now letting it run free throughout the economy. And Alex, she talks about the two peaks we're going to see between now and the end of March, but she also talks about the fact we're only going to see 20% of the population infected at that point. The big difference is that here we all got vaccinated and with with relatively sort of efficacious vaccines. There they are vaccinating. It's a slow process. It's much slower than it was for us. And the vaccines aren't as effective. Well, I just wondered too... I appreciate that the protests in China sort of maybe sped this process up. But the fact that we didn't see this coming and there wasn't a better pipeline to either get the elderly vaccinated faster or secure a good enough supply of, say, the therapeutics, I find to be very odd. Um, And maybe they have it. It's just a matter of distribution. It just feels like there's a mismatch here. And until that gets settled, it's going to be really hard to know what the real bottom is. Yeah, it could go on. 80% 80% of the population after March potentially will not have had a will not have had contact with the virus or or a vaccine which yeah. potentially means you could see continuations of of peaks running through the rest of the year that's going to be a real stop start economy mm-hmm. and also what then i feel like the concern is at how it widens out too right because if you let the virus run that much does it then mutate and then if you open up yeah, the exactly. borders does that spread and then are is everyone else protected so i you know this could get a lot worse before it gets better or is this just like hey we're gonna let it rip everyone deal with it see you later yep talking to you later feels like it. yeah You're bye going. alex is going back to bluebird television she's gonna leave me on my own bye but shanali's up next uh, i want to talk about scott minard uh we're going to talk about sandbag and freed as well but i want to start with scott minard uh, that's coming up next this is bloomberg This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Scott Minard is a name you have probably heard if you are in any way connected to financial markets. The Guggenheim Partners Chief Investment Officer, one of the kind of the last bond kings uh, to, to have had a big influence on this market, 
has died. He was 63 years old. Uh, he died at his home in California a little earlier. Uh, we understand that he suffered a heart attack during one of his workouts. This was all being confirmed by the by the by Guggenheim uh, in a statement a little earlier on. Joining us now is somebody that that knew him well, Shanali Basak. Um, Shanali, how how should we remember Scott Minard? Wow. I mean, one thing that was always interesting about Scott to me is a lot of the biggest parts of his career started in his 20s, in the 70s and 80s at Merrill Lynch and at Morgan Stanley, and he was one of kind of the original bond traders. And I look back to an interview we did over here at Bloomberg in 2019. We talked to Bill Gross, who was one of the Bond Kings, of course, and he said, you know, he didn't think that there would be another Bond King, but Minard would be the most likely candidate if there were one. And so even among his peers in the fixed income universe in recent years, he definitely secured a really near and dear place. It's interesting, I'm writing through right now all of my memories of him over the last 10 years that I've worked with him, and, you know, he was just not your typical asset manager. He was a really outspoken and quirky person, and, uh, you know, and he really beat his own drum. What gave him the confidence to speak in the way that he did? Because I hear what you're saying. He, He had his own approach. He had his own views. Was it was it was this kind of off the cuff or was this a man who kind of did the hard work, understood the granularity, understood where he was coming from and therefore spoke with authority? This is why it was always so fun to cover him, because if you're really following a traditional bond fund manager, Scott always had the saying where never hire an optimistic bond fund manager. And what he meant by that was that if you're, you have to protect downside as a bond fund manager. You're not seeing things like you would as a normal stock investor where you're looking at the upside and the rosy things. He was always looking at the very, very difficult things. And, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, apparent examples of that was in 2020, where he was really already saying this had the potential to be the worst time in his career in February of 2020, well before the world shut down. In terms of the the impact that his death is going to have, clearly we're all incredibly saddened by the news. What does it mean for Guggenheim? So Guggenheim has more than $200 billion in assets under management. Scott was the unequivocally, you know, lead voice there, right? The unequivocal lead voice. He was the public face of Guggenheim Investments. He helped expand the whole thing. He has deputies that have been there for a long time. So co-presidents Dina DiLorenzo and David Rohn are going to lead the company, uh, the investment arm at least. And Ann Walsh, who is the CIO, is going to be really taking a bigger role here from what I understand from my sources because she is the investor that was right under Scott. They worked hand in hand together. They would travel together. Um, I spent a lot of time with Anne myself. She's going to be uh, probably the next big voice over at Guggenheim. Will she speak in the same way that he did, though? He was so... You listened to him, and and he was captivating. Absolutely captivating when you listened to what his thoughts were. Because, as you say, they were they were non-conventional. Is, is Guggenheim at its heart a non-conventional firm, or is it just Scott? It's 
non-conventional. I would say some of the heart of the contrarianism and does carry. But again, Scott is, you know, he was very colorful. I remember, and this is where I think you'll see some of this in Anne as well. I remember one of his most famous kind of letters that he wrote to investors was when he was calling uh, the market a Ponzi scheme that was propped up by central banks. And Anne was with him in writing that letter. I interviewed them both together at that time. And I remember that being one of the most vocal. I remember Reed spiking on the terminal. I remember it setting the tone for Davos that year. And so some of it lives on, but surely he he will be missed. He certainly will. Scott Minard was 63. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. The US market story this evening is grim. The s and is down by 2.52%. The Nasdaq is down by 3.35%. Um, there's a number of factors here, one of which is that actually the data the US economy delivered today was actually better than anticipated. The GDP number pointing to maybe a little re-acceleration in the US economy. That's got the market scared. The rates are going to have to go higher, i.e. the Fed is going to have to be responding uh, a little bit more aggressively. The other stories are, are a little bit more bottom-up. They're a bit more granular, uh, and they are stock-specific. And one of them is having a real effect. And that is the news we got out from Micron. So the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index um, is down by 5.76%. It just looks looking like it's just bottomed over the last few minutes and it's just having an attempt at a little bounce. But it's been a really tough day for US semiconductor stocks. And this basically comes on the back of a weaker than expected revenue forecast from Micron Technology. Um, Micron makes things like DRAM. It it makes commoditized chips. Now, it's been warning throughout this year uh, that it is seeing a slowdown, uh, and it is warning and has been warning for a while uh, that it is seeing an imbalance between supply and demand. Um, So in some ways, this is nothing new. But the market maybe had anticipated that the bulk of the bad news was behind us, and maybe today's number gives us an idea that it isn't. Joining us now is Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Paula Pencal to discuss what is happening here. Paula, I've, I've been kind of watching Micron for a while. It has been telling us for a while that things are are tough. Why do you think today's having such a big effect? Yeah, hi. Um, look, it's the outlook is worse than everybody anticipated. It's that simple. Micron has been very bearish on the market in all of their commentary and whatnot, but I don't think anybody expected... Um, quite the severe severe downturn that we're, we're seeing and that they articulated on their call yesterday. Why is the downturn so severe? What? Why, if you take it to the sort of the end of the end of the line, what what is demand looking like that that Micron is having to tell us this this really downbeat picture? Okay, there's two things happening here. Unlike the last two cyclical downturns. 2019, 2016, this one is because of overbuilding, oversupply in the market, okay? But it's also demand-driven. Previous, the last two cycles were not demand-driven 
downturns, okay? So like in 2019, the cloud service providers, the hyperscalers, just sort of paused on their capital spending in terms of expanding data centers. But you know, there's still need for data centers. They just sort of stopped to digest their build out we knew it would pick up again. So that downturn was very focused. This downturn, there's tons of supply in the market. Um, There's an inventory correction taking place um, among consumer and markets. It's also happening in the data center markets. Um, And then, so you've got the oversupply, and then we've got this wild card of the economy and what's gonna happen with the demand picture. I thought we were short of chips. That's only for very specific components, many of which are related to the automotive sector. And they're more um, power chips that go into cars and industrials. So that is just something that happened during the pandemic, where the auto industry sort of pulled back very, very quickly from order ordering their the chips that they needed because they saw this huge decline in demand initially. And then they suddenly realized like demand is picking up so much, but they were at the end of the line in mm. terms of getting product. It is, Micron is cutting back. It, it, it indicated a few days ago that it was going to be continuing that process. And I imagine there's probably more to come. Are others scaling back? Like What, what are companies like Samsung doing? Okay, this is like an area that I am a little bit concerned about. Micron is taking all the right steps to cut costs, to help um, hasten that inventory rebalance in the market by not adding fuel to the fire. They're, They're pulling back some production, right? So that their production is more in line with actual demand. Great, SK Hynix is doing something similar. Um, On the other hand, Samsung, which is the industry leader, um, they're not adjusting their CapEx plans at all or their production. They're just moving forward. Now, they will see an 11 per, roughly 11% decline in CapEx this year, but that is what they had planned to do initially. You're looking at Micron and SK Hynix, who are um, cutting CapEx you know, in excess of 40%. Um, and so... Mike, Samsung might be the one who benefits the most in right. the end, right? Because they don't have to cut back CapEx, but they're going to benefit from the rest of the industry helping to, you know, hasten or move forward that inventory correction. Final quick question. I see, I see the SOX is off pretty hard here, the, semi, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. I see a read across into stocks like NVIDIA, AMD, ASML was down pretty hard here in Europe. Is is that the right way of thinking about it? Are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater here? No. I, I mean, that has to do... Look, Micron is... Let me step back. Micron definitely is a gauge for the economy because their product hits every end market, right? So, And they also report a month in advance of everybody else because they have an odd fiscal year end. So all these companies are looking at Micron and saying, wow, it's really, really bad. The demand side, yes, there's the you know, imbalance on the inventory side, but we still don't know what the demand picture is going to look like in second half of this year. And according to Micron, it's not looking good right now. And so all these other stocks are trading down in sympathy. 
Paula, great stuff. Fantastic analysis. I really appreciated that. Thank you very much indeed. Paula Pencal joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence on what is happening with Micron and the semiconductor industry. It, it does go to kind of what we're seeing in the market right now. The Nasdaq is down by 3.26%. Volume is is okay. Volume on the Nasdaq is actually a little above average. So that pricing is one you maybe want to pay attention to. The S&P is down by 2.5% right now. It is an ugly, ugly run into Christmas right now for these equity markets, particularly over in the United States. We'll be back. We'll do it all again tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.